0: We have been making our way through the book of Colossians, and so I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17, but since it's been a few weeks, let's jump back to verse 1 of chapter 3 and read through the context here of what Paul has been giving to the church of Colossae by God's Spirit giving to us this morning. Colossians 3, let's begin hearing and reading God's Word in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Would you join with me in praying and asking that God would help us to hear and to apply his word? Our Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning. And we come as those who are needy and we come to the one who is self-sufficient, who's all-sufficient. And not only being so wonderfully sufficient in yourself that you delight to give, That you've not only given your son, but that you've given your word and that you've given to us your spirit. And so we are confident, Lord, in our need, whatever it may be this morning here in this room, that it will be wonderfully met in who you are. So help us, Father, to hear your word in such a way that we receive it not merely as the words of men, but as it is the word of God. Help us to hear it in such a way that it's not merely information or helpful tips or strategies Lord, that we would receive it as what it is, the life that we need. Lord, where you need to convict us, would you please do so. Where you need to admonish and correct us, Lord, would you please do so. Lord, where you need to encourage us and bear us up and apply the balm of the gospel and to exhort us to continue to walk in the faith, would you be so faithful to do so this morning. Father, what we are praying is that our Lord Jesus would yet again be the faithful chief shepherd to us this morning. That as we sit here with your word open before us, and it being read in our hearing, that Father, you would send your spirit to cause your word to bring forth the fruit and the good purposes that you have desired, and that you most certainly will carry out. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be attentive, to be mindful that your word is the word of truth, and that is what we need. So, cause all these things to work together for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. How do you measure success? How should you measure growth? Well, the answer to that question probably depends on what it is you're trying to measure. Is it a hedge fund or a cattle farm? Is it a giant sequoia or a sunflower? In each of those areas, growth is important, but the nature of that individual object dictates the sort of growth and really sets the standard for the sort of change that we ought to be looking for. The principle is true for the church as well. What sort of growth ought we to be praying for and looking for in a church? What makes a healthy church? How would you define a mature Christian? Is maturity and growth primarily in categories of our ability to define and debate Christian doctrine? Is that the benchmark for maturity? Is it some idea that you might have of pietism? some mystical separation from the pollution of this world or from other people, that that is eventually spiritual maturity. And that's what marks out a healthy church. Well, according to the false teachers in Colossae, genuine spiritual growth or real Christian maturity, they say, comes through avoiding certain things and adhering to certain things. The false teachers said that it's only by your avoidance of certain foods, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, and strict adherence to Old Covenant Jewish festivals and feasts, that will secure growth. That is the means of real change. That is the benchmark of health. It was the sort of teaching that Paul would have to say at the end of Colossians chapter 2, that it has the appearance of wisdom verse 23, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The indulgence of the flesh is exactly what we just read in Colossians 5 through 11, these sinful desires. If we're concerned, friends, about Christian growth and healthy churches, then we need to be sure that we are measuring according to the right standard that we're laying down the right standard next to what it is that we are looking at and saying, this is the means by which we will say, this is health, this is growth. And the book of Colossians is so tremendously helpful in this. Not only does it begin with this wonderful Christology telling us who Jesus is, that we need to be absolutely certain in all of his preeminence, and who he is, that he's created all things, and all things exist for him But notice how the controlling theme of this section that we just read has to do with our relationship to one another. According to Paul, Christianity is not mere head knowledge. It's not subjective feelings. It's not mystical intuition. But according to this passage, real growth, real change, real maturity is our Christ-like relation to one another. Because we have new life in Christ, we should expect to be changed. It's the overall theme of chapter 3. And a primary indicator of our growth and this change is that it will be seen in our concern for the body of Christ. Growth in Christ will be seen in our concern for the body of Christ. That is where Paul is going. And the way that we're going to kind of follow his lead in verses 12 through 17 this morning is considering our motive for this, our mandate that we've been given, and then our ministry to one another. It begins, though, with the motive, which is found in verse 12. Before we turn our attention to the how and the what of this passage, we must first ask, why? Why must we do this? We have to deal with the issue of motivation. Why should I care about the health of Christ's church? Why should I be thinking in categories, as Paul is going to say, bear with one another, forgive one another? Why should that even be a consideration of mine? Well, Guilt is a pretty good motivator. It drives you or actually drags you ahead through the power of regret, the power of shame. Many people have gotten pretty far in life being drug along through regret and shame. That's a motivation. Fear is a pretty strong motivator. Well, if I don't do this, well, the pastor might call me out. Others will think poorly of me. I'll just be embarrassed. And many Christians have been driven along pretty far through this motivation of fear. So the question of why is of absolute importance. Why in all of these lists of imperatives that we're going to read about forgiving and bearing with and being kind, we need to ask why. Paul urges us in verse 12 to see what that motive is. He anchors everything that we are to do in who we are. Understanding that Christianity springs forth from who we are in Christ, it changes everything in how we are to relate to Christ's body. And this is reflected in the shape and the emphasis of the entire letter. Just let your eyes glance back at some of the key statements that Paul has made. Chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us From the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Chapter 1 verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight contextually chapter 3 verse 1 that's all where all of this is leading to if then you have been raised with christ seek those things which are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god paul anchors his charge in the context of our newfound identity the why question has everything to do with who we are in christ and what does he say here he uses three phrases You are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved. Now, where did Paul get this language? Obviously inspired by the Spirit of God. But have you noticed how much our New Testament is illuminated by portions of Scripture in the Old Testament? That's not just a coincidence. That's God's design to help us interpret and to understand how we should read and apply the portion that we're reading right now. This language of being chosen ones and holy and beloved is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Listen to what God says of his people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, from the king of Egypt. You are chosen. You are holy. You are loved. Christian. Hear this great motivation for caring for your brothers and sisters in this context. You, Christian, are chosen. To be a Christian, by definition, means that God has selected you. He's sought you out. He's made you his own. You did not petition him, wear him down, convince him, and he begrudgingly said, okay, you can join us. The language of scripture is that God is the gracious initiator and he chooses his people. Ephesians 1 parallel this thought, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you know the overwhelming comfort and relief that comes from knowing God has set his love upon you and said, mine. Chosen. See, God's people are not bystanders, just kind of milling about, just hoping that God will put up with them. Kind of when you visit your relatives for an extended time and after day three or four, you're hoping that you're not beginning to wear them out. God's people do not have that thought, that we're just bystanders milling about, hoping that God will keep wanting to be with us because we look to the teaching of Scripture and see we're chosen by God. He says, you're mine. But Paul also pulls out and he says, you are holy. You are holy. Now, themes of holy and unholy, they run throughout our Scriptures, primarily is a distinction between God who is perfectly pure and holy and without blemish and fully righteous in all of his ways, set in contrast to all that is impure, all that is corrupt, all that is deceptive, all that is sinful, all that is full of guilt. And the shocking announcement of Scripture is that while we are born in sin and corrupted by sin, God makes sinners holy. That distinction is meant to shake us between holy God and sinful man, and then we are to be shaken even greater when we hear, and God makes unholy holy. A Christian who is, one, is one who can say with all astonishment and all gratitude and all assurance, I'm holy. And this is why we sing even to one another, inviting one another, come ye sinners, lost and ruined by the fall. Because the invitation, I think it's verse 4, says, We are to come to God incarnate. We are to plead the merit of Christ's blood. We are to venture on him. We are to venture wholly because of what he does and what he has done. Christian, you are a great sinner. If you did not know that, I'm here to let you know. But you have a great Savior. That is what every Christian says, just and sinner. That's what Luther held up. His frustration of all of those years in Roman Catholicism. He finally came to this great realization, I am simultaneously just and a sinner. The Christian is one who says, I am holy. God says I'm holy. He's made me holy. He's making me holy. And I shall forever be in my glorified state holy. That, what that means this morning Christian, is that the Father looks at you and he says, holy, without blemish. Now, how that can be, we're going to get to in a few moments, because you probably know of one or two moments in this week, maybe this morning, where you would say that by definition is unholy. Nevertheless, God says, chosen, holy. There's a third thing. Our motivation here is also that we are loved. Now, to be told that we are chosen and to be told that we are made holy, those are staggering declarations, but this third one is equally as important. Now, it's true. We ought to make much of our election. We ought to emphasize the gracious election of sinners and that that is a God-glorifying doctrine that magnifies the wonder of the grace of God, saved by grace through faith. We ought to make much of the fact that God makes us holy. We have to be trumpeting justification by faith, the top of our lungs. But if we stop here, Christian, you risk developing, even promoting a lopsided version of Christianity. You run the risk of promoting a distorted version of Christianity. It can be a version of Christianity that speaks much of the doctrines of grace and the importance of holiness, which are very important, but it's one that overlooks this third aspect, God's love for his people. The scriptures really give us two yardsticks to measure the love of God. They are the cross and the gift of sonship. What kind of love are we talking about? Well, John in his epistle, his first epistle is very helpful here. In 1 John chapter 4, when we said one yardstick is the cross, he says, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice that absolves wrath. That's yardstick number one. How much does God love you, Christian? Enough that he sent his son to bear the wrath of your sin, to take it away. The other yardstick is... Chapter 3, verse 1, see what love, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. That's adoption. I think it was Packer who said you could summarize the entirety of the New Testament in this term, adoption through propitiation, that God makes a family through the giving of his son, absolving their sins that they might dwell with him. Christian, hear this. You are beloved. Your heavenly Father delights in you. He's well-pleased with you. And he rejoices over you. That is the truth of Scripture. He delights in you. And he delights in satisfying and fulfilling his promises to care for you throughout every day. Not only in your temporal needs that are many, but ultimately in your greatest need, which is dealing with your sin and drawing you to himself, he always gives you what is best. He never gives you less than his best because he loves you, because he's good, because he's righteous. This love that he has for you, it's not based upon your performance. It's not based upon your obedience. It's not based upon your eloquence. It's a settled forever anchored reality in your redemption and your adoption. Friend, if you've ever wondered what Christianity is all about, maybe you're trying to figure out what it's really about, it's this right here. God justifies the ungodly. There is God and there is the ungodly. The message of the gospel is that God justifies, declares righteous those who are ungodly. We are born in sin, every single one of us, unwilling and unable to love and honor God as he deserves. And this rebellion, it is the ultimate version, example, expression of treason, and it deserves God's wrath. And God's wrath is just, it is good, and it is eternal. But God has promised us and assured us That if we would repent of this unbelief and we would believe upon his provision, which is his son upon the cross, that we shall be saved. That's why we say this is what Christianity is about. God justifying the ungodly. Meaning, friend, you too this morning could say chosen, holy, loved. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. Well, in context, though, why do these words matter so much? As wonderful as they are, they're not just here. They're not for us just to look at upon the wall and say, Paul used some words, let's move on. He's placed them here in an argument. Why? Why are these words here in this verse, on this page, in this pericope? Well, for a very important reason. We're meant to feel the security and comfort of laying hold of who we are before we ever turn to someone else. Only a Christian can carry out the commands that follow. That's why. Everything else that we're going to look at this morning, every command, every imperative, only a Christian, only someone who's been chosen, made holy, and beloved can actually do this. Let me put it this way. If you flippantly just skip over these three words and attempt to deal with others in humility, bearing with them, forgiving them, being kind, you will fail. And you will forget the very motivation and the reason why you must forgive. Don't overlook that word must. The motivation and the sustaining ability to care for others, as this passage is going to insist, is an overflow of all that is true of us in Christ, our redemption is the motivation for our relationships within the church. Do you hear that? Our redemption is the motivation for the right relationships we are to have within the church. It's point number one, our motivation. But notice there's a mandate. Right in and around this, we are given commands. Back at verse 12. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if any one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed... You were called in what in one body and be thankful. Now, there's no escaping the list of imperatives in this section. All these commands have to do with the clothing that we're to put on and the conduct that we are to keep. So let's think of it in those two categories, the clothing that we're to put on and the conduct that we are to keep. That's our mandate. Well, what's the clothing? Well, we're to put on the sort of attitudes, or virtues that reflect our new life. Remember the context, chapter 3, verse 1. Just as Paul grouped five vices in verse 8, do you remember how he did that? Put these off, and he listed five things. Now he gives five virtues, and he says, put these on. What does he say? Compassionate hearts. This would be a yearning with a deeply felt affection of Christ. Christ. This is more than the flippant sending prayers emoji that you would send along to someone else. You know this one? That's much more than that. This is a depth of feeling that moves us towards that other person to relieve their burden, to weep with them in their sorrow. It's pity and it's action. He mentions kindness. Put that on. Well, kindness could just be understood as the goodness of heart. Think of it in contrast to what he says in verse 8, in contrast to wrath and malice and slander. Kindness is an expression of mercy. It's not dealing with others as they deserve, but extending the goodness they need. That's why kindness is hard. Because when we deal on a quid pro quo basis, kindness doesn't show up a lot. He mentions humility. Well, this is the sort of person that we all love to be around. Because this is the kind of person that they're kind to others, but they do so because they do not have a high estimation of themselves. Not that they have a low sense of self-worth, but they have a self-forgetfulness, as it's been put. I just don't think of myself first. By God's grace, I'm growing in humility, and I'm thinking of the other person. I'm thinking of you. Put on humility. Moses considered the meekest man. And meekness is here commended to us. Think about what you know of Moses and then try and form a definition of meekness. Meekness is not spinelessness. Meekness is not weakness. It's not the sort of person who blows over with every breeze. They would rather suffer injury than inflict it. Moses most certainly was being noted as very meek Scripture says, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. This is the same Moses who stood up to Pharaoh. This is the same Moses who led the people through the Red Sea. This is the same Moses who fiercely rebuked rebels. This is the same Moses that when he came down from the mountain and saw the people worshiping false idols, Demanded that it be ground into powder to mixed into water and make a million people drink it. It's not weakness. It is strength under control. It's strength bridled specifically by the control of the Holy Spirit. Patience. Not quick-tempered, not demanding others to bow to your timeline or your schedule, but willing to suffer long. This is the sort of clothing that we're to wear. This is what we're to put on. These are the attributes that Christians are to be known for. Your clothing says something about you, doesn't it? You may have not thought about that. You just rolled out of bed this morning, and that's news to you. I'm also here to help you with that. (laughs) Think about how clothing says something about who we are or what we're doing. Go to the airport. It is very easy to figure out who are the pilots and who are the passengers. Because we roll out of bed in our athleisure and our baggy sweatshirts and slippers and get on a plane. And up front are the people in pressed shirts, ties, and shiny shoes. It's very easy to say pilot, passenger. The clothing that they wear gives away who that they are. Paul is saying here, be clothed with this. Since you've been raised with Christ, put on then these things. The clothing differentiates them from all the rest, and so too the Christian. But it's not just the clothing we're to put on. He goes in and he lists four examples of the conduct that we are to keep. The mandate here is the conduct that we are to keep. If we're going to put on these five virtues, for what purpose? Is it just to strut about and look at my humility? Look at my compassion? Look at my patience? No, we clothe ourselves in order to do something the conduct that we are to keep. Notice the four expressions that we're commanded to have. Our conduct is to be marked by number one in verse 13, bearing with and forgiving. Put on these things so that you might bear with and forgive one another. This means that we're not easily offended. We're not writing each other off with every grievance or offense. That's it. You're dead to me. Instead, we bear with one another. Some translations say, put up with one another. I like bear with better because put off just kind of sounds defeated. I'm putting up with them. Bear with, come alongside. We endure, showing that we're committed for the long haul. That's what bear with means. And even if there is a grievance between us, we forgive as the Lord has forgiven me. Now, upon saying that, immediately a hand goes up in the back. How many times? Uh, what about this circumstance right here? I mean, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I mean, let me, just t- okay, let me just tell you my story. It's a good question. You're not the first to ask. Peter, guy in the back with the hand. Lord, how many times should we forgive our brother? Seven. Seven. If you're asking that question, go home and read Matthew 18, verses 21 through 34. You've just heard that as a Christian, you are commanded to forgive as the Lord forgave you. Why? Matthew 18, Christ tells a parable to answer Peter's question and maybe your question that is wonderfully helpful and absolutely essential. It has to do with, spoiler, how you've been dealt with. bearing with and forgiving. Verse 14, our conduct is to be marked by those who are bound in love. Even though we are chosen, even though we are holy and beloved, we can also be selfish, insecure, and stubborn the potential for division and for cliques among us and partiality, it exists within every single one of us in this room. Therefore, we seek to wrap all of these virtues that he lays out here with this overcoat, this covering of love. Above all these things, put on love. Ensuring that our care and our interaction with one another is going to be fit together in what he describes as Harmony. The interesting thing about harmony is it actually requires diversity. For the musically illiterate, when you actually hear people singing that sounds wonderful, it's because they're singing on different notes, but those notes are complementary, and when they are played in the same structure and at the same time, though they are different, there is a harmony. Harmony is beautiful because of diversity. But it's only beautiful because that diversity is done in love, that it's playing the same music at the same time. Bound in love. We seek to wrap all of these virtues in love. Love is what ensures our diversity is not division. Because it's possible to be a, look at us, we are so different. And we hate each other. Diversity alone is not the goal. What Paul says is that all of this would be bound together in love so that there's harmony. How so? Well, being bound together in love means that we are all seeking the same end and we all understand the same goal. We're playing the same sheet music. What is love? Well, let's just remind ourselves. Well, it's patient. It's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable, resentful, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And love, it never fails. Our conduct thirdly is to be ruled by peace. See this in verse 15. We are those reconciled to God, and by that very definition, it implies that the breach of our offense has been dealt with. Remember Colossians 1, verse 20? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What this means is that we relate to one another through the purposes and accomplishment of the cross. I will offend you. I will sin against you, and you me. But we deal with those offenses through the provision of Christ reconciling reconciling death. Peace is possible even in the offense of sin, because it's been pacified through the cross of Christ. The judgment that my sin deserves is not just float out there in the ether saying, hey, just forgive me, brother, sister. The judgment that my sin deserves, the offense that my sin has brought, has been paid for on the cross. So when Christians forgive one another, they're not just saying, keserak It's fine. We are saying that is sin. It is grievous and offensive, and Christ has satisfied the judgment that your sin deserves. So I can then relinquish my desire and right to punish you, because Christ was punished. I'm not just asking you when I say you must forgive, Paul says, to just throw it up in the air. I'm telling you to look at that sin through the lens of the cross and where peace has been accomplished. We are to be ruled by peace. And so what this means is that a caring church and a a healthy church is not sinless, nor is it afraid to confess sin because there's peace through the cross. So we're not afraid of getting too close to one another and being, oh my gosh, she's a sinner. Nor are we embarrassed or ashamed to say, Brother, would you pray with me? I have sinned this way against my wife this week. Those are normative things within a healthy church. We are ruled by peace because of the peace that's been brought and purchased to us as those reconciled through the cross. Fourthly, and lastly, our conduct is to be ruled by those who are becoming thankful. This is the end of verse 15, almost a throwaway clause that you would be tempted to say thankfulness, shmankfulness Move on, but you can't. It's not a throwaway clause. I was struck by the fact that this, in the original context and language, it's in the verb tense of not just be thankful, like you guys be thankful this week. Becoming thankful. You are and are continuing to be thankful. Keep being thankful. Grow in thankfulness. The opposite, of course, would be ungrateful, bitter, and cynical. Instead of this, we're called to be mindful of what we deserve, but seeing all that we've received as God graciously provides. Now, just step back for a second and notice, all of these virtues assume something. All of these virtues are living in a context where we will be sinned against. We will offend others. In a context where differences and personalities and preferences will grate against one another. All of these things are said assuming that reality. Why else would you need compassion, kindness, humility, and patience? Because not everyone's like you. That's the third thing I'm here to help you with. Why else would you need to bear with and forgive, seeking to maintain harmony and peace, being bound together by love? Because the remaining corruption of sin still produces all manner of division and hurt and offense. You see what Paul's doing here. He understands what it is to be a part of a local congregation. He understands what it means to actually say brother in Christ, sister in Christ. All the goodness that that entails, but all the reality that that drags along with it. This is who you are in Christ. Clothe yourself with these things. Conduct yourself in this way. It assumes that we will need to deal with one another in light of our sin and in light of the cross. Our motive... Our mandate. This mandate is not one we can overlook. It's not one we can just move on. Belonging to the body of Christ, joined to a local church, exposes us to the sins and the shortcomings, the failures of one another, and it obligates us to deal with one another according to the new life that we share in Christ. It was Pastor Dick Lucas who said, it's God's purpose that in, the local ch- that in the local church should be seen a glimpse of the new man. And through this, a glimpse too of the God in whose image he was made, and by whose grace he's redeemed. As you look into the local church, you ought to see an image of Christ and a reflection of that redemption that he has wrought. Remember, all of this is in the context of chapter 3 in which you are this since you've been raised with Christ. And if all of this isn't true, then the way that a healthy church and a growing church should be marked out, it will have something to do with this mandate of how we are commanded to care for one another. Which leads us to our last point, our ministry. It's all building towards this, verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed in everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verses 13 through 15 are the mandate of what we are to do. Verses 16 and 17 are the instruction as to how we're to go about doing this. Number one, he says, Our ministry is that of bringing the word to one another. Bring the word to one another. The word of Christ must dwell in you richly, meaning let the word of Christ be more and more at home within your life, so that the rich treasure of God's wisdom fills and shapes all that you do and think and respond. Now notice how all this fits together. We're not merely to fill our heads with facts and systematized doctrines. We are to systematize and we are to memorize and meditate and apply so that we might Teach and admonish one another. Oftentimes Christians love this verse, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and they talk about how they love their Bible study and their morning devotions, sermons that they listen to, all wonderful things, but put those words in context. Why should the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Christian, because you have a ministry to teach and admonish one another. The riches of the word of God are not meant to be hoarded for selfish consumption. They're meant to be given to others. If you're not understanding what I'm saying, I'm saying this. The responsibility to teach and to admonish one another is placed squarely upon the shoulders of each Christian as they relate to one another. If you want to know more about this, go home and read Ephesians 4. See how God's designed this wonderfully, that he has given gifts to the church, that he has given ministers of the word to equip the saints. It's the same thing Paul's saying in Ephesians 4. Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And what we're talking about here is that Christians within their local church have this ministry of bringing the word to one another for teaching and admonishing. Christian, you are responsible for bringing the word of God to your brothers and sisters so that they might be furnished, their lives might be well-ordered in the wisdom of Scripture. The word of God is to dwell richly within you so that, not just for your own benefit, but so that the person seated to your left and your right behind you and in front of you would be taught and admonished. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, it's a small book called Life Together, and I think it's in the first chapter, he talks about this very issue, the importance of bringing the word to one another. Listen to what he says. The Christian no longer lives of himself by his own claims and his own justification, but by God's claims and God's justification. He lives wholly by God's word pronounced on him. The Christian lives wholly by the truth of God's word in Jesus Christ. If somebody asks him, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the word of God in Jesus Christ, which assures him salvation and righteousness. But God put this word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. He needs a brother as a bearer and a proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. And this clarifies the goal of all Christian community. They meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation, the goal of all Christian community. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly to teach and admonish one another. What would it look like to organize your week intentionally to meet with another sister or another brother primarily for the purpose of bringing the word of God to one another? Could you schedule a breakfast, a lunch, an afternoon at the park, sequester the children on the play structure, you sit on a bench, five minutes, teach and admonish? What would that look like? How might a culture of a church be changed and encouraged, and strengthened, and edified as its members see it normative for Christians to engage one another with the word of God as they listen to one another and say, I hear what you're saying, don't forget this. Don't forget this promise over here. And yes, God's word would instruct you here. I think the wisdom that's helpful here, have you read Ephesians 4 here? Well, Don't forget about what God calls us to in Matthew 28. I've been so encouraged by what Paul lays out here in Romans 3, Romans 7, Romans 8. What if that was normative for the sort of conversations that a local church carried about? Not only are we to bring the word, we have a ministry to sing the word. That's what it says there in the remainder of verse 16. In simple form, verse 16 commands us to sing. God's word. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That is, our singing should be biblical. It should be filled with the lyrics, the language, the categories, the theology of the Bible, and it ought to reflect the themes of the Bible as well as the substance and the weightiness of the Bible. Notice we need to read this in context. We must read the command to sing, verse 16, alongside the command of Christ's word to dwell in us richly. Those are not separate. Meaning, one way that we teach and admonish one another is when we sing together. This means that corporate worship is a means of grace. The songs that we sing are not just directed to the Lord. And maybe you came from a context or visited churches like that where corporate singing is just, it happens to be a bunch of individuals in the same room. But actually, the pattern of scripture is that when God's people gather, it's congregational. It's done together And we are individuals, but we are a part of a body. And what's being said here is that the songs that we sing are not just me and Jesus' songs. They are sung to the Lord, but they are to one another as we instruct and admonish one another. How so? Well, when I see our dear sister afflicted with cancer, weakened by chemo, And I look across the room and see her singing gladly, joyfully. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to him belong. And we come down to the fourth verse. Unto the grave, what will we sing? Christ, he lives, Christ, he lives. What reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And so, as I see her sing and I hear those words, I am filled with gratitude. My faith is strengthened by watching my sister sing in faith. Those are not just words, I'm being taught, I'm being admonished. She sings, I receive. Friends, corporate worship is not simply the background music you hear in the waiting room of the dentist's office to set the mood for the real reason is why you came. Please do not treat corporate worship in that way. That's not what it is at all. We sing to teach and to exhort, to have our hearts filled with thankfulness. So church, I encourage you to do something. Look around as we sing. Some of you do this. Some of you notice I have time from time to do this. It's okay to make eye contact while we're corporately singing. It's not awkward. (laughs) And I like that we're set up in this section that we can kind of look across the room. And if you do make eye contact with a brother or a sister and you're singing Christ alone, Christ alone, it's that just, you don't even have to say anything, but it's, yes, we're teaching, we're admonishing. That's why our service leaders will let's join our voices in unison. Let's encourage one another as we sing this hymn. Because that's what we're doing. Colossians 3.16. We have a ministry that has been given to us by Christ. Bring the word. Sing the word. The bow that ties all of this together is verse 17. It's the summation, really, of the entire section. Whatever you do in word or in deed. And all your care for one another and all you're putting off and all of your putting on, whatever it is, do it all according to the person and character of Christ. A healthy church and a mature Christian ought to be the concern of every believer. And the benchmarks for godly change and biblical growth are laid out here before us. We care for one another As an expression of Christ's care for us, and we deal with one another in response to how God has dealt with us. What a tremendous ministry we've been given, Veritas Church. What great motivation we have to carry it out—that it's not guilt, it's not fear. We are chosen. We are holy. We are beloved. May the Lord continue to grow us as his church in such a way that others might see that we follow Christ, that they would know that you are his disciples by your love one for another. Let's pray and let's ask that God will be faithful to his promise. Our Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning and we pray that you would help us, that you would cause your word to be fruitful and effective, that you would cause your church to be healthy and growing according to the very measure, and benchmarks that you have set forth. Lord, we ask that you would help us in our weakness, you would help us in our sin, that we would deal with one another through the ministry of reconciliation, that you would help us to see one another as brothers and sisters, and that you would continue to cause the goodness of the gospel to bear such good fruit among us, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.